Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week, I'm going to talk to Glenn McDonald with 54 Bust. And it hasn't been that long since I talked to Glenn. Episode 226, just before the season started, I had Glenn on. And we were just uh, kind of previewing, you know, what people could expect if they were moving up to Canada or coming on up to Canada to start the season. And it's hard to believe that it's already been, I think that was roughly four months ago or so, that we talked to him. And, I mean, time flies when you're having fun, I guess, right? So we're going to talk about a good handful of stuff. We're going to talk about tubes, and we're going to talk about suckers, and we're going to talk a little bit about turnover, auto charting. He got a new boat, and he's got a YouTube channel called 54 Bust. So we're going to talk about all of those different topics. I'm sure there's a couple other things in there, gear and, and sucker rigging and a little bit of trolling. So kind of going all down the uh, down the gamut there, and hopefully it's going to help you put an extra fish in the net this fall yet. And it's, like I said, it's timely te- timely topics for this time of year. But that's uh, kind of what's going on this week on the podcast. Uh, Brad's still off filming stuff for Mayhem's 10,000 cast, so he won't be with us again this week. Uh, hopefully he wraps that up and, and gets back on the podcast. But in the meantime, I'll hold down the fort. And if you're still out musky fishing, looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventure, make sure you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. We have uh, pen reels. That's that's one that we've just added. I was able to use the Pen Fathom this fall. And to say I was impressed with it in limited use was an understatement. I thought it was a pretty unbelievable reel. It's the uh, 6.2 to 1 Pen Fathom. They have a high-speed reel as well, which I didn't play with, but I I really enjoyed it. Super smooth, very nice reel. So if you're in the market for a new reel, don't sleep on the Pen Fathom. I'm sure you'll hear about it a few times because I I was thoroughly impressed with it. Very nice. Reels are definitely something that we uh, have added to our repertoire. We have some other pen trolling reels. We have some Okuma stuff coming and we're getting reloaded on some some more Daiwa stuff. So we've just gotten some Abu reels in there. We had been lacking within our reel selection, so we're hoping to fill some gaps there. So if you're looking for reels and anything else that you'd need for fall musky fishing, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And you can also go, if you're still fishing blades, and Brad would recommend fishing them all the way until you know they bounce off the ice, go check out MuskyMayhemTackle.com. They're your source for big bladed flashaboo baits, and you can uh, you can get everything you need to fish a bucktail or find a bucktail of your liking at muskymayhemtackle.com. That being said, nothing else to add to this episode. I'm going to go dial up the conversation I had with Glenn McDonald. All right, my guest this week is Glenn McDonald, and most people would know Glenn from a YouTube channel called 54 Bust. We had Glenn on episode 226. Typically, I don't do guests that close together, but Glenn does a lot of informational videos. He spends a lot of time on the water. And so for this purpose of this video, we're going to just try to get a bunch of information as far as like how how Canadian fishing was going because Glenn's up in Canada and we don't have a ton of guests from Canada either. So Glenn, I do appreciate you taking your time on a Sunday afternoon to talk musky fishing with me. It's especially on short notice. It was very much appreciated. Absolutely. I appreciate the offer of coming back on. I always love talking muskies and it's a beautiful day in Northwestern Ontario. I should be out on the water today. We've been out the last couple of days, but we're right in the middle of what most people would consider turnover, even though a lot of our lakes don't actually turn over, but we're right in that, that really strange period where the fish are not schooled up and they're not in predictable spots. So 
it's a bit of a day off of the water for me. So I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we have, we've had some crazy weather over here too. Like I'm, I'm sure much like you, like October started out like very warm, like above average warm. And then all of a sudden, like the last week, it's made a complete change and things are much, much cooler than they had been. And the uh, temperatures are dropping rapidly. And like, much like you, I think if I was on the water this weekend, it's very, it's been very windy and very rainy the past handful of days. So I'm off today. We finally have sun, but it's still very windy. But um, I'm assuming many anglers are experiencing turnover this weekend. So hopefully uh, everybody had a good weekend on the water. But, you know, Glenn, so we had you back right before the season started. And then obviously as we, we always have ideas in the beginning of the season, what you know, how things are going to go based off of how spring went. Let's kind of talk about your season up there in Canada. How have things been? You know, I know for us, it was extremely dry. We had spikes of hot temperatures, but then we would have those, uh, see, you know, everything below average for seasonal temperatures. So we never really got too bad as far as, uh, you know, pushing that 80 degree boundary. Was that something that you guys saw up there as well? We started the season really warm, really dry. And we ended up, if I go back looking at my notes, about the first week of July, if I'm looking back July 1st, July 2nd, we were at water temps of 75 to 78. And it was looking like we were actually going to be shutting down some of the fishing just to be on the safe side. And then around the 8th to the 15th of July, we got a really big cold front that came through and it literally dropped the lake temps down 10 degrees right off the get-go. And I'm looking at my notes, July 15th, we were down to 69 degree water temp. So we, we avoided that, that real nasty warm spell. And what that cold front did is it actually changed the fishing for us here personally from being a real tough bite. We were getting fish pretty much every day, but we were seeing fish in deeper water because of the warmer water. I think the fish were sitting a little bit deeper. And then after we got that cold front, we started to see fish in more what we would call, you know, summer type of spots, the weeds, the shallower rocks. And up until that point, we actually, I did a video where we hadn't caught a fish on a bucktail all season. And I think it was in the mid part of July before we actually started catching fish on bucktails. And it's not because we weren't using them. It just, it wasn't a pattern for us. We were seeing them down in deeper water. So the beginning of the year was really a strange time for us up here. And I think a lot of the guides and the people that come up here probably seen that it was just, it wasn't as predictable as you would think it should be. And then as you progressed into, you know, August and September, how was, did, did things normalize a little bit? Like overall, I guess, how would you rate your season? We had a really good season. Personally, I, it's not my best season numbers wise. It's probably ranks up there as, as probably one of my most consistent seasons. Once we figured out the pattern and that a lot of the fish were sitting deeper, we were able to target those fish pretty consistently using a couple tools, you know, using live scope as, as a tool of trying to find the bait, trying to find some of the fish that were sitting suspended using auto chart to keep ourselves off of structure, which is a big thing up here on shield lakes. And a lot of the guides up here, I know guys like Danny Herbeck, Cal Ritchie, they talk a lot about staying off a of structure. And that's a problem that we see a lot of people have when they don't fish shield lakes. They come up, they see an open water reef, 
It might be marked on the Navionics. They pull right up on it. They cast it. They don't see a fish. Then somebody else comes behind them and sits 150 feet off the structure and they raise three. So we were able to try and find that pattern. And once we did by the kind of the first part of August, we actually put together some, some pretty good numbers of some pretty nice fish. And for me, the red October tube just turned out to be the perfect, you know, kind of weapon for that, able to count it down get it down into that strike zone. And a lot of times we're able to see either see the fish on side imaging or live scope and get those fish to react. Or if we didn't get them to react, we were able to, mark a waypoint and then again using auto chart kind of see where those fish were relating to structure and come back to them and that pretty much held right through into september and actually as recently as um this past friday i caught one on an open water reef using a tube using that same technique just using the auto chart to stay outside of structure and we never actually put the boat in anything shallower than probably 14 to 17 feet and it feels weird at first for people that have never fished that way to just be sitting out in the middle of nowhere casting to something you can't see but once you you trust your electronics and trust the style of fishing that you're doing it becomes second nature and it took us a long time up here to do that and we watched lots of guys do it and we always wondered how they could be successful but now that we've done that, we're able to do that and continue those patterns a lot longer than I think we ever were in the past. All right. Well, I wanted to go down a couple different paths. So you brought up auto chart. I want to go down there, but let's touch on tubes for a second. A tube, I would still say, is an underrated bait. I can tell you that the popularity of them has exploded in the past three seasons, though, for sure. But I still think, you know, most anglers are still shying away from them. Can you talk about your technique, how to work a tube? Maybe talk about the gear that you use. Uh, which rod are you using to throw a tube? Well, I'll just back up one second there, Jeff. Um, the popularity, we've been using tubes probably for five, six years, very sparingly. I didn't have a lot of confidence in them. I fished with my buddy Michael Grant up here. He was one of the first ones to really adopt the tube up here. And, and if people hear that name and it sounds familiar, him and Heinrich Bear had Monster Quest or sorry, Giants Quest on YouTube probably 10, 12 years ago. And they were big tube users when they first come out. So we started to just slowly incorporate them. And this year, my buddy Matt kind of got me more tuned into them and, and more trust in them. And that really helped. And once you, like any bait, once you get some confidence in it, you can do some amazing things and pairing it up. I was using a nine foot Moab pretty much all season throwing it. And I've been using 80 pound barbarian braid, which is out of Canada here. Great braid. We've had zero trouble with that handles. Everything great. And I've been using an Akuma seven to one reel and that just that ratio works really good. You can pick up line really quick and just the combination of that having, you know, a really stout rubber rod. There's a lot of them on the market. It really doesn't matter which one you get, but you want to have something with a lot of backbone when you're ripping rubber. I think everybody knows that. And for me, I like to have a reel that I can pick up a lot of slack. So depending on how big and, you pull and how long you pause, you need to be able to pick up that slack. And 
some days the fish react to really quick pops of the tube and other days they want that real slow methodical almost walking across the bottom or walking across a ledge so you need to have a rig in your rod and your reel that allows you to kind of do that and this year i paired it up with a 12 inch stealth leader connect it with a split ring and i'm good to go usually if i put a tube on it's on all day so i'm rarely ever switching all right and are you primarily using the mid-depth tubes the deep rigs the shallow rigs so we like a lot of guys that are into tubes we kind of build our own rigs but we base it on the mid-depth rig and we add an extra treble in there and then they usually extend the back out a little bit and put a trailer blade that's all in line and something else we've been doing this year that I don't know if it makes a huge difference, but we've seen that it has is that we take the little ice fishing bells that you put on the end of your ice fishing rod. And I take one of those off and I zip tie it inside of the harness. So when you hold it up, it makes that little pinging noise. I don't know what it does underwater, but most of the fish that I caught this year were using the rigs that have that little bell in it. And it's a bit of a labor of love. It takes a long time to make some of these tube rigs, but once you get them made up, they last a long time. You just replace the tubes around it. And Mark Arena from Red October, he's been a big supporter this year. He's sent us a lot of stuff to use and can't thank him enough for the support that he's you know given us. And we actually, we come up with a custom color. We'll have it in our hands here probably by the end of this week. So we're hoping that that's going to be something cool that we can use as well. Yeah, very cool. It's awesome to hear like some of the, uh, you know, just the modifications guys do when they're on the water. Like I've never heard of anybody, you know, adding essentially a, like a rattle kind of to a tube. That's very cool. So let's see here where we were going. Oh, we were going with auto chart. Let's talk about auto chart. You mentioned it a bunch of times in one of your opening statements there. You know, how do you use it? How do you get started in it? You know, I, I had a, a customer, and a, well, we'll call him a customer because I think he put a note on his order talking about the, the podcast. And he wanted to know more about auto charting. And so let's get people started in that direction because that's not something we talk about on the podcast a lot. So for us, when we got the first couple Helix units up here, and that's going back already a number of years ago, one of the features was the auto chart. And at first I didn't really think too much of it, but because a lot of our lakes in Northwestern Ontario are not mapped very well, and anybody that's come up to Eagle Lake will know that the Lake Master or Navionics chips are not accurate at all. So we started doing a little bit of auto charting. So basically what it is on your hummingbird units, and most of the brands have some type of auto charting or self mapping in them. Just, you know, you have to kind of refer to whatever brand you have, but for us using the helix units, you just toggle through, find the hummingbird auto chart option, turn it on. And what it does is it maps in real time as you're driving around. And it'll hold on the Helix units up to eight hours. So I did a bit of research and Hummingbird makes a chip called the Zero Lines card, SD card. And you, you buy that and it has the outline of pretty much every lake. I mean, every lake in Northwestern Ontario that we ever fish is on there. And then when you go on the water, I just toggle on auto chart and it maps as you go. So for us, I have a huge portion of Eagle Lake mapped. I have a huge portion of Cedar and Peralt mapped. I have a huge portion of Indian Lake chain, some of the smaller lakes in the area. And where it comes in super handy 
is when you're finding open water structure or long bars that run off of islands or mainland, you can auto chart that and it'll give you in real time the depth and then it lays it out basically like a one, one foot increment map and then you can color code it. So on mine, I run it so that I know yellow is shallower, orange, it starts to get deeper. And by standing 10 feet away from my graph, those colors really pop for me. But there's a whole host of colors you can go from. I just found that the stock blue, you can't tell the difference in depth very much. So then taking that one step further, now when we pull up onto an open water reef, say the West Arm of Eagle Stretch Reef is a really popular reef. It's huge. It's the size of a football field. And there's a couple jugs that mark it, but it's really easy to just pull up on it, cast around the jugs and then take off. And in that situation, you're missing the best part of the reef because going back to what I said earlier, you want to stay off the structure. Now with that auto chart, you can kind of keep your boat in a 20 foot depth or a a 25 foot depth or 14 feet, whatever that outside edge is so that you're casting to that first or second break line And once you start to get these big open water structures mapped out, you can just pull up on it and you don't have to rely on 2D sonar. You don't have to rely on your side imaging to find structure. You have it mapped out exactly how you want it. And then when you find fish on there and you mark a waypoint, you can start to correlate that to where, where is that fish sitting in relation to that structure and guys that use it, use it really really well and i think we've adopted that and it to us it's probably the biggest game changer for fishing shield lakes for us outside of yeah the first 10 of editions of side imaging were cool because we found lots of structure that we hadn't previously known about but the auto charting for us has taken our game to another level by not having to be right on top of structure all the time so with that do you just troll around in auto chart or are you auto charting like as you're using your trolling motor going around, you know, structure using, you know, whatever previous waypoints or the maps that are, you know, preloaded while you try to make your new maps? Well, how do you go about doing this? So the way that we've used it is that we just turn it on and then we fish a spot and it maps it as you go. If we are spending a day and David and I, my, my main fishing partner, if we have a day where we get like this really hot bluebird skies middle of summer and the fish are off we'll spend the afternoon just driving around looking for new areas and the beauty of auto charting is if you're fishing a piece of structure it's mapping you know 100 feet on either side of the boat as you go and it might all of a sudden start to pick up a structure off say the starboard side of the boat that maybe you'll see on side imaging well now if we have a day where we got some time to kill we'll go over and see what the auto chart was picking up on the edge of that structure. And all of a sudden, Oh, we're going to auto chart. We'll drive around and map out a spot and then we'll keep that in mind for later. And, you know, kind of fast forwarding to this summer when we are seeing a lot of fish out on walleye humps, especially on lakes like Cedar and Peralt, there's a spot on Peralt. There's a string of walleye humps. It probably runs, the distance of like three or four football fields between a couple islands. And there's four main walleye humps that run between there. And I was out there with some clients this summer and I had a walleye boat that was trolling. They were trolling like shad wraps or something across there. 
they've actually come up to us and they're like, what are you guys casting in the middle of nowhere out here? I'm like, it's littered with walleye humps all the way across here. And we raised four nice fish in that pass because I had all those humps charted and I was able to stay off of those humps, cast up on them using live scope. I can see where that distinct drop line, you know, drop off edges and we can target that without ever having to be on top of structure. And for some of the old school guys that relied on 2d sonar to, to tell where the depth is or where your brake lines were, in a lot of cases, if you're if that's all you're using, you end up on top of that brake line or on top of that structure. And from what we've seen in the past couple of years, if you're on top of it or right close to it, you're too tight to it. And in a lot of cases, you you know you kind of mess that path up that pass up just because you're too tight to structure. That's kind of funny that you say that. I had a conversation with somebody recently. It wasn't on a podcast. It was just I had a conversation, and we feel like. There's oftentimes a lot of musky anglers work too tight to structure. You know, if they're if they're working that edge, they're like right on the edge, so their casts are landing over the top of the weeds, which is fine. But it's like if they took one boat length cast back, it would almost be more beneficial to them. We've always said that you can always move in tighter. If you start too tight to a weed line or you start too tight to a reef or to a point, and you're sitting on top of fish in a lot of cases you spook those fish or now with the live scope you can see that there's fish under the boat and in a lot of times if you pull that boat up and that fish is either under you or just slightly behind you you can't get those fish to react or sometimes they'll ride along with the boat we've seen that but it's a definitive tool to show you that you've pulled up too tight on top of structure or on top of the spot. And we always start out deep. And like I say, it was a, it was a tough transition for us as we got into musky fishing. You just want to pull up on a spot and you want to cast, you know, right tight to it. We always have a running joke up here that if there's a reef that has an orange or, or white buoy on it, all the Americans are going to drive up and they're going to cast right to that buoy. It's like a target. And when I have a client or a guest or a friend and we're way off of it and they can't, no matter how hard they cast, they can't reach it. They feel like we're not fishing it effectively. And I'm like, we are guys like this, this is the way we need to fish this. And we've put some nice fish in the boat doing that. And then people start to see that, okay, yeah, these fish aren't always up in two to five feet of water. Sometimes they're sitting out. There may only be down six, eight, 10, 12 feet but they're sitting over top of 30 feet. And it, once you get that mentality, you know, kind of switch in your head, it's a lot easier to fish that style of fishing. And so many people that we see up here have that same problem, Jeff, where they just, they want to pull tight, tight, tight to structure because they feel like that's the most effective way. Yeah. I can't disagree. I can't, I can't agree with you more on that because I've, I see it quite a bit. I mean, I'm not on the water nearly as much as you, but I see them, a lot of anglers, they fish way tight to structure and I fish off quite a bit and, you know, I've done fairly well considering my limited time on the water this season and I'm not saying they're not, they're not doing well, but it's, it, we, like you said, sometimes we, as musky anglers, we want to be right on that structure, right over the top of it, really tight to it where, you know, backing off a little bit can sometimes be beneficial. You know, changing up a little bit, Glenn, I heard you talk about live scope quite a bit. And obviously that's a very hot topic button. Like you, you obviously use it. Do you find it to be, I mean, I guess we'll call it, 
cheating because I think that's what people that don't use it, they think it's just, it's automatic, right? You're going to catch 15 muskies a day. You're going to catch all the walleyes in the lake and it's just going to be detrimental to fishing. <laughs> Obviously you don't see it the same way. Let's just have your thoughts on it a little bit. How, how do you think it's utilized? How do you think it's changed your fishing? Again, I'm not trying to you know, point a, a bad light on anybody. I have it. I don't use it that often just because I don't get to fish that much. So I haven't spent the time to learn it. So for me, it just seems like another thing, but friends of mine that do have it tell me like, Hey, you really should try to utilize this a little bit. It can be beneficial. I'm a little bit torn on it too. I get the tournament side of it that I'm not going to call it cheating. Cause it's not, it's still musky fishing. You still have to get them to bite even if we went out and we, we scope out 10 muskies on a day, we might get two or three of those to react to a bait. And we might get one or two of those to actually bite it. It's a tool that we use. I use it a bunch of different ways. I do going back to like the tournament stuff. I'm not sure that kind of leads itself to a level playing field. And again, it, it's, it's money, right? People that don't have it or can't afford it. And that's not anybody's fault. It's just the reality. It costs money. If they don't have it, they're against it. If they do have it and they're successful with it, they're for it. I didn't have side imaging for a long time. And I felt like I was missing out on stuff because I've heard of so many people. And like Brad was one of them that used side imaging so effectively down there. And you hear about it on podcasts like yours. And I'm like, God, I, I got to get that tool, but it was expensive at first. So I think as, as things change and prices come down and it's more affordable, more people will have it. Is it going to wreck musky fishing? I don't think it's going to wreck musky fishing because again, at the end of the day, you still have to try and catch the fish. You can't just throw anything at a mark on live scope and expect them to hit it. Where we use it is we use it as a tool. We use our auto chart mapping to stay off of the structure or outside of the weed line. We use the live scope. And in a lot of cases, I'm using it as a real time side imaging. So I can see exactly where that break line is where it goes up onto structure, it goes up onto a sandbar. And yeah, if I see a fish sitting there, we're going to take a shot at it, of course. But I'm not, I don't scan around continuously just looking for a fish mark on the scope. Anybody that watches our videos, yeah, there's times where I'll be like, oh, there's a fish there. We'll move it around and be like, okay, yeah. And actually on one of our videos, I, I'm the fish is following right up and it hits right at the boat. Yeah. Any other time, if I didn't have it, I probably wouldn't have kind of reacted the same, but we just feel that it's a tool. And I do feel that for a lot of people, it can be a beneficial tool. Do I like the quote unquote sharpshooting aspect of it? No, I don't. Do we do that? No, we don't. We don't just drive around looking for, for marks. It's just not that easy to do that. If we see fish, yeah, we'll take a shot at it, but just, this past weekend on Friday, Dave and I went out in what turned out to be the first fish we caught in my new boat. And we didn't even turn the live scope on once all day. We were doing a bit of trolling. We were doing a bit of casting. And I caught a fish on an open water hump using auto chart, which was more effective in that situation than the live scope would have been. And then yesterday I went out with my wife and my youngest daughter 
and we were running suckers for the first time this year and using live scope, we watched the fish come off the bottom and hit my daughter's sucker. We didn't get it in the boat, but in that instance, we could prepare for that fish coming up to hit the sucker and try and get ready for it. So it was, it was a cool tool that way. So the end of the day, it's, it's a tool, Jeff, like anything else that we have, it's, it's just another tool in the box. For sure. So you you had a perfect segue there for me. You're talking about your new boat. One thing I want to talk about is the boat itself, because you obviously went through the the purchasing uh, process for this new boat. What were, what did you settle on? What were your, your thoughts on new boats? What were features that you looked for that you thought you should have? Because, you know, as we move to the off season here, many anglers will be, you know, putting their rods down, I'd say within the next month, month and a half, potentially, depending on what the weather does and what their hunting situation is, if they hunt, you know, and people are going to start to be looking at, you know, new boats over the winter. What were things that were important to you? What were things that you, uh, you didn't feel like you needed so much and just kind of talk about your new rig a little bit. So to back up, I fished out of an older bass cat Pantera two for the past seven years, pretty much right on the nose. I bought it used from a local fella here. And it served us well. Love fishing out of a bass boat. They're so low to the water. And it was fun to just rip around in. But anybody that has a bass boat, they are absolutely purpose-driven. That's exactly what you get. You get a speedy little boat. It's got you know, not a lot of storage. And you got a couple of nice casting decks. But beyond that, there's not a lot of creature comforts. And doing a little bit of guiding. And my family growing. We we just outgrew that boat. So it was time to start looking at a different boat. And because of being a musky angler for one, doing some filming and doing a little bit of guiding on the side, I was looking at a boat that had a lot of room, a lot of casting deck, a lot of storage. And I wanted to make sure that I stayed in that 19 to 20 foot size of boat. I didn't want to go any smaller. So as I was kind of searching around, the one boat that kept coming back to me was the Lund Pro V Muskie in the 1875 or the 2075. I I felt that the big one might have been too big and the smaller one, the 1875, would kind of fit what I wanted to do. So I ended up fishing with a buddy here, Mitch, and that's exactly what he had was the 1875. Really liked the boat, had a lot of room, a lot of casting room. And I pretty much kind of had my mind set up that if I was going to go new, I would go that direction. And then as it was getting closer to selling my boat, then as things start to get real and anybody who's bought a newer boat or even a newer used boat, when you are in that decision-making and you know, you got to make a decision, it's hard to stick with one thing or the other. And I started leaning towards getting a big Lund impact with the full windshield. I, you know, I'm getting to that point in my life where it'd be nice to have the, you know, the wind protection, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't like the fact that a windshield takes up so much room. So I was left in a bit of a dilemma. I ended up selling my boat. It sold right away. I listed it and 45 minutes later it was sold. It kind of shocked me that it sold that fast. And now I had to make a decision And I just, like a lot of people right now looking at new boats, the prices are so high. And in Canada, I think they're even higher compared to, you know, the United States. So 
that was another decision. It's like, do I really want to take on eighty, ninety thousand dollars worth of debt in a boat? And at the end of the day, I just I couldn't bring myself to buy a brand new boat. And I started looking at some used ones and a twenty foot Lund Pro Guide tiller come up for sale and it checked a lot of the boxes for a musky angler. Tons of deck space, tons of storage, open, very open kind of layout in it. You can remove some seats if you're not guiding. You can put a couple seats in if you are. It had an Altera on it that was almost brand new. So for from guiding standpoint, it's easy at the back of the boat. You just hit a button. I always fish from the back. It just it checked a lot of boxes and it was essentially, you know, a third of the cost of new and just having a family that makes a decision, you know, a little bit easier to kind of stomach when you're, you're getting a new boat and something that a lot of our followers, our community on YouTube talk about is the fact that we, we fish out of boats that everybody have or can, can afford. Dave's got a, a 17 foot tiller. I got a little 16 foot tiller and, and I had an older bass cat you know, we're not fishing out of those $150,000 Rangers, which yeah, I would love if I could afford, but I can't. So people related to us just being, you know, everyday kind of weekend anglers, which is what we are at the end of the day. So it, it fit my lifestyle. It fit my budget and it fits what it is we do as, you know, musky fishermen and as a musky fishing channel. Yeah. Very cool. I, I can understand that. And you know, the, uh, I, I had a Ranger back in the day and it was a great boat, but at the end of the day, like I still had a loan on it. And at some point I was just like, yeah, this probably isn't really the best financial decision to have this boat. And I, so I sold it. I didn't lose a ton. Rangers sold their value pretty well. You know, and I just got into, I have a, a Lund Fury XL. So it's a 17 foot boat that I fish out of most of the time. I do have a Tuffy 1760, but man, I, I look back and I, I on how lucky I got when I bought that boat. I think I bought the bought it brand new boat motor trailer for like seventeen thousand. I think it's a 2016, 2017, but it was a holdover for you know it 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 was a year old versus what new model year was. And I I look back and I could I I would almost guarantee I could sell that boat for at least what I paid for it now. And it's just crazy how much things have exploded in in the boat market in the past. Obviously since COVID in the past three four years. Oh, absolutely. The boat David has, it's seven years old, pretty much again to the day he bought it used. It was a few years old then, and he got basically a smoking deal and he could sell it in today's market up here for probably what he paid, if not a little bit more. So that just some context on how things have gotten so crazy. And I'm not against anybody having a brand new boat. And if you have the wherewithal to do it, and you know the disposable income absolutely and at some point in my life i probably will go buy it you know a brand new boat you know that'll be my midlife crisis muscle car or muscle boat whatever you want to call it but for what it is we do it fits the style of fishing that we do the style of lakes that we go to a lot of the lakes that we go to don't have concrete launches they don't have you know easy roads to get into some of the smaller lakes up here you know, we're doing 15, 20 miles of gravel road and you're launching in on a clay rock mix landing. You need to have a rig that you're not going to be scared of getting a couple scratches on. 
so there's there's that when you're fishing up here and the the amount of different lakes that we fish and the amount of different styles of road that you go on you need to take all those things you know into account when you are looking at a boat up here and for a lot of people up here having that big fancy fiberglass boat whatever it is it's great if you're just fishing eagle or lake of the woods but when you want to start venturing off and and doing other things people tend to look at, you know, a different style of boat. So it was a fun process. And for us, our YouTube community was, was really invested in on it. I, I did a recent video on the very last trip in our bass cat with my wife and my daughter and people reacted to that, you know, really favorably. And I just posted a video of the first fish we caught in our new boat and people are reacting to that. So it's really cool to have people, want to kind of follow along in, in what you're doing and we try to keep it you know educational informational we try to have some fun you know we're really lighthearted on what we do and for us fishing is always it's it's our break from reality so the guys that guide full-time or or you know work at camps and stuff it I sometimes wonder how they can do that day in and day out because I think a lot of people say when your hobby becomes your job, it's not quite as much fun. And you probably found that too, Jeff, you know, just with the business, when your hobby changes and it, it's a full-time job, it, it changes your perspective on it. And we've always been able to keep that at kind of arm's length by not having fishing be our full-time gig. It's just a side hobby. We're like, probably the quintessential weekend anglers you know we get out when we can i fish more than most weekend guys naturally but it's still all about just getting out and having some fun yeah you i mean you're right it definitely changes the uh, when the when the hobby becomes a job it definitely changes the dynamic on it there's no doubt about it so i said it to people sometimes be careful what you wish for you just might get it right <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that that's absolutely true and being living where we do up here and we had talked off the air here a little bit about i think or maybe you just mentioned it about when guys transition into hunting for us up here moose hunting's kind of open now so people that are getting out moose hunting will start to do that but the big change over here is at the beginning of november when guys get into deer hunting and for us it, it's almost a hard stop of musky fishing and then guys transition into deer hunting so you go from like one hobby into another so just being in in our area it it lends itself to having a bunch of different hobbies and they all seem to have a start and stop time and as as deer hunting kind of winds down then ice fishing starts so we're pretty fortunate that we don't have a lot of hobbies that overlap here so it's a really fun area to live in especially if you enjoy the outdoors you just you got to have a little bit of money to afford all the toys that you need to do all those sports. But as anybody that lives up here knows, you're going to find some, you know, some extra income or you're going to make sure the wife is on board when you buy a snowmobile or quad or side by side in the boat. Those are things that you need for Northwestern Ontario. So if you wanted to fish all the way all up to the end of the season, like when is a typical ice up for you guys? Obviously it, it varies year by year, but like typically when, when would you see ice show up? Uh, looking back on my notes, it's pretty consistently around the 11th to 18th of November is when we're like fully iced out. 
Um, the big stretch of Eagle will, will hold a little bit longer. There's a couple launches out there that you could get out, but just looking back on my notes, the past few years, we're our t- typical last couple of days on the water are usually around the 11th of November. And then after that, it's like, if you get a nice day and the ice isn't completely to the launch, you can maybe get out. We've pushed our luck a couple times really, really late in the season, you know, busted some stuff on the motor, some props and stuff to try and get out after those last couple fish. But as we get older, we don't need to do that quite as much. But yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the mid part of November we're done up here. And, and in a lot of cases, pretty much everybody puts everything away about that first week of November and you'll get the last couple guys that'll be out pushing their luck right to the very end. All right. So you guys are looking at about a month yet, maybe a little less than that before things will pretty much shut down. Yep. That's, that's pretty, pretty accurate. Um, our last big push is usually the Halloween week. And then that following kind of weekend period, we'll do a big push around there. And again, looking back on some of my notes by that, 7th of November to 11th of November, we're starting to get down into that low 40 water temp. So, you know, you're right on the cusp of a couple cold nights up here and we're going to start seeing some, some ice warm around shore. All right. So you, you kind of talked about it early in the podcast. You talked about uh, running suckers and I want to talk a little bit about suckers because it's that time of year, right? So let's talk about that. You you have some good notes. I've I've gathered that in talking to you. You you keep really good notes, actually, stuff that I really should do myself. But what temperatures are you typically finding that you're running suckers to have, I would say, the most success? I know there are guys in in my area, Wisconsin, that will start running suckers as soon as they can in September. I think I even heard of somebody running them in August. But typically it's harder to keep them alive at that point versus the muskies not eating them. But like, what's your, your, what's your program when it comes to suckers? Just a quick aside there, Jeff, a few years ago, um, Greg Thomas asked me to write a quick segment on sucker rigs. It was in July that I had to write this. So I needed to get a couple pictures. So I went and trapped a couple of suckers out of a pond that we hold some in. And my daughter and I went out, she was going to take some photos of me just rigging a sucker I had no intention on actually running them, but I was like, well, because my daughter Dakota's with me, we'll drag a sucker. I'll cast a bit. We'll make something of the day. I brought three suckers with me and we caught four fish on three suckers in like the 15th or 18th of July. So if you're around fish and you can keep suckers, they're going to bite them, but you're right. They're very hard to keep in warmer water. But for us, typically about the mid part of October, we tried running them yesterday and we weren't seeing bait schooled up. So meaning whitefish or ciscos aren't starting to move shallower yet, or they're not even starting to stage up at like kind of their pre-spawn areas. And we weren't seeing muskies start to pack up. So a lot of our lakes up here, outside of Eagle, I don't, no eagle well enough sucker rigging to kind of comment on it but like cedar lake indian lake chain peral canyon lake ord lake some of the other lakes that we fish up here you start to see around 50 degree or a little bit lower water temp muskies start to pack up and by pack up i mean the size of four football fields you might see 
five or six in that area. And that means that the bait is starting to school up in those areas. And again, yeah, looking back on my notes last year, my wife caught her biggest fish up on cedar and the water temp was 50 degrees and she got a 52 and a half on a sucker. And then that was October 14th. And then by October 22nd, our water temps were down to like 47 and they kind of held there for about a week or so last year. And then as we got into the first part of November, we were seeing 45 degree water temps. And then our very last day last year, the 5th of November, I think was the last day we were out, we were down to 42 degrees. So once we start to get that 47 to 50 degree water, you start to see that bait start to school up. They kind of stage up ahead of spawning and the muskies are right behind them. And that's what we're looking for. So right now we're about five degrees too warm. As I was out yesterday, uh, the water temp yesterday was 56. So yeah, we're just a little bit too warm for that major kind of sucker bite. When you're running suckers, let's talk about this a little bit. Like how how deep are you running them? Are you able to run multiple suckers? I know in Wisconsin we can we can run multiples. What kind of rod and reel setup are you rolling with these? So in northwestern Ontario, you are only allowed one rod each, so one sucker. And something that we do that I know is definitely different than the Eagle Lake guys. A lot of the Eagle Lake guys, and by that I'm meaning guys like Steve Herbeck for years, like he was kind of that master of the sucker rig, but they also cast while they're doing it. So they'll have, they'll run a couple suckers as decoys or as, you know, as they pull fish in casting, they might hit that sucker. That works really well for them. When we started sucker rigging, I knew nothing about it. I talked to Pete Mayna a couple times about it. He's an old family friend of my wife's side of the family. He kind of gave me some pointers and one thing that he told me, he's like, bring your suckers to the muskies. Don't try to bring the muskies to the sucker. And I didn't understand that at first. And it took us a, a year or two to figure that out. But what we typically do, Jeff, is we, when that sucker bite is on, we will, if we have three people in the boat, we run three suckers. We don't even bother casting because we've just found that it's just not an effective way to catch fish at that time of the year. There are times when maybe we get a slight warm push and a little bit of warmer air or slightly warmer water, you know, for a day or two where we'll cast and, and that can be effective. But when we see the bait schooled up, you know, outside of spawning areas and we see the muskie schooled up in there, we'll run suckers and typically we'll run them with a weight in front of it been running this year we're running stealth rigs which i like i love that stealth rig with the, the straight hook on the back so that you can just slide it through the skin and then back out and it you're not piercing like the body of the sucker that's really important we like the nose clips because they're really easy to put in and again you're not putting a single hook through like the lip or the snout of the the fish so you try to keep that sucker as lively as you can and then we run a half ounce, three quarter ounce of weight, you know, at the end of the sucker rig. And then in most cases, if we're running more than two, we'll run one on a float out the back of the boat, 
40, 50 feet. So it's, it's away from the boat and we just let that one do its thing. And the other two, we always run on weights and we'll run one partway down in the water column. And the other one, we try to run almost along the bottom so that you're two to three, five feet above whatever depth we're at. And the nice thing about that late sucker bite is that it's, it's post turnover. So the water temps the same from the top to the bottom and a muskie can be at 30 feet down and you can catch them and bring them to the top with no trouble. And those fish will move in and out of that water column easily. And even before the live scope, we, we haven't really done any muskie fishing with the live scope to try and not really target them, but see where the muskies are sitting in relation to the bait and try and get the suckers to them. But just using side imaging and the 2D sonar, we are able to see muskies off the structure and then just do our slow roll. And we always keep the boat at about 0.5 to 0.8 of a mile an hour and just slow pull those suckers through those areas and, and get those suckers down to the muskies. And we've been very effective on doing that. And that's probably one of the things that kind of got our name onto the muskie radars a few years ago we had a, a really good season and as we were posting stuff on social media and then a couple quick little videos that we posted of us having a lot of success it, it just led to more people wanting to know what it was we were doing so we kind of stumbled on it but it, it's a really effective pattern for us i guess we'll go kind of back to but what Nate Ospar was talking about last week on our podcast, he was, he was talking about how there's a difference in dragging suckers versus presenting live bait. And it sounds to me like you guys are presenting live bait and you're not just dragging suckers. You know, the benefit to Wisconsin angling is we can still, you know, put a sucker or two out and we can cast lures as well. So if the weather's fine, we, you know, we can still uh, do both techniques at the same time. So it's it's beneficial for us that way. But it's definitely, you know, when the guys that are good at catching muskies on live bait, I would say they, they do a, a very good job of presenting those suckers to the to the muskies, like Pete had said, versus just, you know, having it just dragging behind you. Yeah, I, and yeah, that that is the perfect explanation of of how you do it. And I think a lot of people get in their head that we're just going to drag some suckers around and and the muskies are just going to hammer it. it. It's almost like that live scope debate. It's like, oh, if you have suckers, it's like a, a, an unfair advantage. It's not. If you don't know how to get the suckers to the muskies, they're not going to eat them. And even though muskies are, like everyone says, they're quote-unquote putting on the feed bag in the fall, yeah, they are. But they're also trying to use the least amount of energy possible and trying to get the meal with the highest amount of calories possible. So you have to flip your mindset there that they're not going to chase a bait all over the country trying to find a meal. So if you can get a sucker right close to them, and yeah, sometimes they'll follow it and they'll swim and they'll look at it and then they'll roll off. Clearly that fish is either just ate or it's not in that mood to eat because why else would he follow a sucker that's like the easiest meal he'll have that day and not eat it. He's clearly not in the mood to eat, but knowing where those fish are and trying to get your suckers to them is the easiest way again, to present them that easy meal. And I, I think that you're, you're spot on there, Jeff, the guys that do it really well, do it really well because they, 
they shift totally into like sucker rig kind of presentation. I know for years up here, guys like Danny Herbeck, he caught so many fish on suckers because that's what they did. They just pulled suckers around, pulled them on top of muskies and they got bit. They weren't trying to cast to a spot and, and pull a fish off. And I think it's such an effective way to fish in the fall. And for us up here, when you get that week or two week period where the Cisco's and whitefish are spawning and you can get into a spot and we, there's a few spots on the lakes that we fish here that you pull in and when it's prime time, there can be 10 or 15 muskies in an area the size of a couple football fields. And it it's literally your graph is lit up with bait and lit up with big marks. And if you're good at dragging suckers and presenting those suckers, you're going to catch fish. And it, it's something that we struggle with on lakes that we don't know well enough. And it takes time to, to learn the way the bait react to structure and the way that the, the muskies react to that bait. So it's always a bit of a learning curve. And it's, it's a fun one because when you're not worried about casting and you can just work slow and methodical, you can learn a lot in a day, even when you don't catch a fish, because you can study what the bait and the fish are doing on your grass. Let's talk about, you know, what you use for gear to, to sucker fish. Are you using like a trolling setup? Is there something specific you're using? Let's talk about that a little bit. So the last couple of years we've transitioned over to using the chaos trolling rods and they work really well because they, they're typically a little bit softer. The only thing that we do find is that it is a little bit harder to get a solid hook set with that slightly softer trolling rod. But what I do like about that slightly softer trolling rod is that it gives you more flexibility in fighting the fish. And something that we get a lot of comments on, on our video, especially when we're obviously sucker rigging is that people are like, your guys' hook sets are really wimpy. They're not like that made for TV up over the top of the head. Like when you see Doug Wagner set the hook, like he sets the fricking hook. There's no question, but we don't find that that increases the hookup percentage any more than what we do. So we just, we lower the rod to the water. We give it, a tiny bit of slack, not very much. And then we just give it a super sharp upward set. And we always try to position our boat directly over top of the fish, if at all possible. When a muskie picks up our sucker, we try to position that boat directly overhead and we set directly up and we find that gives us the best hookup percentage. And we set from the, the water up to just above waist level. And then we don't have very much line to pick up. And when people set the hook way up over their head, they have so much line to try and pick up to keep the tension that we, for the style we fish, we feel that people lose fish in that split second from the hook set to when they kind of gain tension on the fish. So the trolling rod, once you get a solid hook set, that slightly softer rod, it just, it acts as a shock absorber. The fish can move around and it gives you that little bit, you know, um, ability to keep a little bit extra tension on it. So that's been really helpful for us. And we always pair it up. Pretty much all our reels are the Akuma cold water, low profile ones. We switched over to those probably seven, eight years ago. And they're a relatively inexpensive reel. The clicker is nice and loud on it. The power handle works really well. They don't freeze up 
hardly at all. We've never had one fail on us. And last year I signed up and started using Akuma stuff uh, reels exclusively. And it was a natural progression for us. So for anybody out there looking for a trolling reel or a live sucker style reel, the Akuma cold waters, we just can't say enough about them. I know there's a lot of different line counters out there, but this is one that falls right in that middle of the price range. And for guys, especially weekend angler guys that don't want to spend a ton of money, it just, it's a great option. And the chaos trolling rods, they're not a lot of money. And that, that gives you just about as good a setup as anybody's going to want out on the water. It's uh, good that you mentioned the Okuma cold water. Cause you know, if you're looking for them at some point here in the fairly new, near future, you'll be able to find them at uh, teamrhinooutdoors.com. It is something that we added to our our lineup uh, probably like two weeks ago or so we ordered them. I don't know how long it'll take to get them. We may or may not have them before you, you know you need them this year or not. But in the future, if it's something you're looking for this winter, you know check out the cold waters. Uh, Glenn, are you using the 20s or the 30s? Because I've, I've been using a 20, and for me, trolling-wise, it puts plenty of line on there. The 30s are definitely an option, I guess, for a lot of guys too. Which ones are you using? Yeah, we use the bigger ones. We all of ours are, I think they're the 354. So it's, uh, it's a 300 size 5.4 to one gear ratio. They, they're just like a workhorse style reel. And there's two different models. There's the cold water, which is the lighter gray cover or color. And then they have the cold water. I think it's SS, which is the darker kind of blackish, um, gunmetal gray color. And that one has stainless steel gears versus the original, which is brass gears. We've had zero issues with either of them. And we, we probably are as hard on sucker rig reels as anybody in this area for sure. So can't recommend those enough. And it's cool to see that you guys will have them in stock there as well. So how about, you know, you talked about an Okuma casting reel. Are you using the Komodos? Yep. Yeah. This year I've been using the Komodos. We've actually used those for the last few years. And this year, my kind of my workhorse reel was the seven to one in the 300 size. And it's, it's a nice compact reel. It's for guys that use the Shimano uh, Tranks 400. It's very much that similar size of reel. I like the seven to one just to have that little bit of extra speed. And I find that even if it's a tougher pulling for a bucktail, I like to have speed. I like to be able to slow down as opposed to not be go, not be able to go fast enough. So I, I don't even hardly ever use anything in that five, three or lower gear ratio anymore, even for bucktails in the summer, because I just find that I want to control the speed. I don't want to be limited to what the reel does for me. If Brad was here, he would talk about it was just like a lot of anglers, they have a tendency to want to go really, really fast all the time. So by using, you know, by spooling it not quite as full and using the lower gear ratios, it forces them to slow down because they have a tendency to want to burn all the time. So that would be the only negative towards it. But I'm like you, I'm, I'm using them, you know, 6.2 to one to 7.1 to one, you know, that kind of stuff in that, in that ballpark. I don't typically use anything with like a... 5.1 to 1, 5.3 to 1, whatever. So, so Glenn, you know, based on what Brad thinks, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Cause you're a higher gear ratio guy. 
I think Brad is spot on. And again, I think it goes back to a weekend angler or somebody that only fishes a few times a year versus a more seasoned angler and a more seasoned angler like Brad, like myself, like you, like a lot of the guides, they're going to dictate their speed on what the fish are going to react to. And I think a common problem that we see with a lot of weekend anglers or guys that don't get out much is they, they get on the water, they go to the most obvious kind of fishy looking spot on a lake and in their head, they've been told or they've read or all they ever hear is you've got to burn bucktails, burn, burn, burn. And they go with speed all the time thinking that these muskies are going to chase, chase, chase. And I think going back to what Brad said, that is so common that people get caught up in that. And I think if the typical weekend angler were able to have a slower speed reel and a higher speed reel and try each, even on the exact same conditions on the exact same spot, they might be surprised to find that fish react to a slower presentation versus a faster. And I know sometimes that's a bit of an ask to have a weekend angler buy more than one rod, one reel. But if you have a slightly faster reel and you get good at slowing down, and I know Brad talks about slow rolling big bucktails, that's super effective. If you can have the control to just slow roll, even a big, you know, double 10, whatever brand, you can be super effective with that. So I think that's something that a lot of newer anglers need to you know, be conscious of is what is my speed and can I slow this down or should I speed it up? Not let's run fast all the time. Yeah. Speed control is obviously a huge thing and you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to control it your, yourself. Right. So it's uh you know, you can do it with a reel or you can do it with simply just your, your retrieve speed. And like you said, a lot of experienced anglers will just do it with their retrieve speed. So Glenn, before we get out of here and before we move into five questions, let's just talk quickly about when do you decide you're going to go sucker fishing versus when are you going to go trolling? Because they're both very popular techniques this time of year. So we suck as trollers. So that's usually an easy decision. We troll out of necessity. We are getting better at it. And we've had a lot of help from a lot of guys, you know, helping us get our trolling game kind of dialed in. But what we look at is when the fish aren't reacting to a strictly casting presentation. So like right now, at this 54, 55 degree water, it's really tough to get fish to react positively to casting. Some days they will, the next day they won't. We'll, we'll start to mix in a bit of trolling and see if they'll react to trolling. And sometimes trolling is more about just finding fish as opposed to catching them. It's like, oh, we're seeing some bait on the side imaging or we're seeing some bait you know, off of break lines. And then as we start to get right close to this 50 degree water, then because of our historical data, now that's telling us that we got to start getting some suckers out and let's get some suckers in front of muskies. And then as we go through that kind of two week period where the Cisco's and whitefish are spawning, it's pretty consistent sucker bite. And then as soon as that's over, you'll go back to the same spot the next day that there was eight muskies in an area. There's not a single fish. Those fish have all moved out to the main basin and then that's the time you need to transition over to trolling uh, up in our area. 
Yeah, that's funny that you said that you're a good, uh, you guys suck at trolling. I used to think I was a decent troller, but as I've spent more time one-line trolling up in northern Wisconsin, less time uh, three-line trolling, whether it be on Green Bay or the various other lakes that we control three lines, I found myself to be less of an effective troller. It's just amazing how much quicker you can, uh, you know, dial in a pattern with three baits, whether it be, you know, big baits, small baits, fast, slow, deep, shallow, all that kind of stuff. It's just, you can break it down a lot quicker, obviously with three presentations. So I'm, I think I'm in your ballpark now. I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm a, what considered to be a terrible troller nowadays. It's kind of weird how I made that transition. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's something that we are consciously trying to get better at. We have all the tools you know, at our disposal. It's just, Again, it, it's time on the water. And like you say, with one line only, so if it's, it's two of us in a boat, one guy's running a supernatural and another guy's going to run a grandma and then maybe we'll switch and we'll try, you know, some other styles of baits. But with a couple baits in the water, it's very hard to try and figure out a pattern. And that's where the guides that are on the water every day, they're going to win that battle all the time because they are consistently seeing what the fish are doing. So as a weekend angler to be good at trolling is very tough. Yeah. Like you said, you just don't get enough time to, to, to do it and to dial it in. And for me lately, you know, if I'm out there trolling and I'm struggling, I'm like, but I could be on fish if I was casting. So I give up on trolling way quicker, whereas you really need to stick to it. And, you know, we've talked about on the podcast too, you need to stick to it. Not only just in like off peak moon phases you know you need to dedicate to it like if you're going to troll that means troll through the moon phase because if, if it's a good bite window for casting it's a good bite window for trolling so and a lot of times we typically you know give trolling a try during what you consider to be off peak moon windows yeah and i think that that's a really common thing especially up here guys that come up for a week they cast on the moon they cast on sunset and then they're fatigued during the mid part of the day. They'll throw some baits out, wash some baits, and that's all they do because they're not they're not fishing effective areas. They're not fishing effective times. They're trying to just pass the time as a, as opposed to manage their time. So it, it is a common problem up here, and it's it's a problem that we have too. And it's one that we just need to find a season where instead of you know going hard on say that September casting bite, let's try and troll some of those, you know, peak times in September and, and learn how to effectively troll when you know the fish are still in certain areas, because when you start to troll in late, late October, early November up here and the fish are scattered all over, you could be trolling no man's land for two days straight. If you don't understand where the fish are, so it's, it's almost a double-edged sword. You're trying to cover water, but you're not covering the right water. And then you go home and you feel like you're defeated, but you actually didn't even do any research into trying to be at the right spot. So there's so many things that go into trolling and I, I wish we were better at it. When I, you know, I hear of guys like that Kevin Goldberg from out East and he's such an effective troller and I hear the success that he has. I'm just like, God, I wish we could start to figure that out because guys like him and there's so many great trollers, even Brad, you hear of all the successes that they have. And it's like, how do they make that seem so easy? But it's, it's not by chance. They've put the research in, they've put the time and the dedication to make it an effective pattern for them. And that, that is again, as weekend anglers, it's so hard to figure out. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% correct. All right, so Glenn, I know you got other things to do today. Let's quick buzz through some five questions. I'll give you a chance to uh, talk about where people can find more about you. But let's start with, uh, I heard you talking that you're, you've been using a lot of the stealth tackle stuff for um, you know, terminal tackle, leaders, and whatnot. Are you a floral guy or are you a solid steel guy? This year, I did not use a single fluorocarbon leader. I, everything I got from John was, well, he sent a lot of everything. And I did have clients use fluorocarbon for bucktails, which I do think is effective, especially on the eight. But again, back to my style of fishing, I was running either the nine inch, 49 strand or seven strand for bucktails and then everything else. And because we're using so much rubber this year, I was using a nine or 12 inch solid wire with just using a split ring. In some cases, I'll use a snap if I know that I'm going to be changing baits because of a structure. All right. Now, topwater baits, would you prefer, are you typically running like a, a flap tail type presentation slower, or are you going to be using like a tail rotating bait, like a uh, top, um, like a top raider or a fat bastard? I, this year I was using a walk the dog style bait from my buddy, Adam at Tom top line baits out of Southern Ontario, caught a few fish on it. Nothing huge. We, if I'm going to go to a top water, that's my first choice is that walk the dog style bait. I used to love the little dancing raider from uh, Booker outdoors. Those things were amazing. Caught so many big fish on them. Um, I want to love a flap tail. I just can't seem to get it done. I think my patience level is too low and we talk about it on our channel. We power fish more than we finesse fish and a flap tail is more of a finesse fishing thing. Again, that's something we need to get better at. I would agree with you on that. I'm definitely a power fisherman, whether it be ripping rubber, burning bucktails, uh, you know, ripping jerk baits type of a thing versus the uh, flap tail, much like you, it's uh, patience level just isn't, isn't quite there for that. I need, I need to work on that as well. All right. All right. This may or may not pertain to you. It's on my list, but I figured since it's trolling season, are you more into grandmas or Jake's? I would say if you asked me that question 12, 10, 12 years ago, I would have said a Superman Jake all day long. And right now, the past number of years, it's a 13-inch granny, and it's Tennessee Shad, or we don't clip it on. All right. Then how about you prefer full moon fishing or new moon fishing? Absolutely new moon. New moon underfoot, that's the absolute best pattern that we've had consistently the past probably five or six years. If you can come to Canada in the mid part of July, with summer peak temps and you can tie it around a new moon and hit new moon underfoot at midday, it's going to be lights out. All right. Last question. Full grip on your rods or are you a split grip on your rods? Again, if you asked me this question 10 or 12 years ago, I would have said split grip all the way. Now it's full grip. And actually the fuller, the better. I was just talking with Eric Kramer at Kramer custom rods about a new rod, he had sent one, and I like it, but the grip is a little bit, the butt is a little bit too short and a little bit too skinny, and I just find that the full grip sits nicer against your side, and it's less fatiguing. All right. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you for your time, but before I let you go, 
if people want to get in touch with you, they want to find out more about your YouTube channel, you do offer up a little bit of guide service. I know you, is that something that you want to talk about? You can, you can go do that right now. The easiest way to find me guys is just search 54 bust on YouTube or on social media. You guys will find me search my name, Glenn McDonald on Facebook. You'll find me there. And I do do a little bit of guiding. I limit my days only because I have a full-time job away from fishing and I help my wife at her sports shop and we have a family. So it's always a balancing act. I try to take, well, this year I tried to take 10 days and I think I ended up with 26 days of guiding. Truly enjoy guiding. It's some of the most fun days on the water, but again, you just have to balance it. So just search up on YouTube and you guys will find my email address there or send me an email at musky at 54bus.com. And if you guys want to text me, I love talking muskies, 807-529-4034. Don't send me any bad pictures. <laughs> All right. Well, Glenn. Once again, I want to thank you for taking a uh, Sunday afternoon to talk musky fishing with all of us. It's great to talk to you. I hope that for your remaining month of the season or whatever, you end it with uh, some giants in the net. Well, every, everybody will be able to see what your successes are on, on your YouTube channel, 54 or Bust. And for our listeners, we want to thank you all for putting up with us again for another episode in almost another season. I know many anglers will start to tune out in November as they shift their focus towards hunting podcasts and things like that. But we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be back again for you guys all with a new episode again next week. 